Well, welcome to the second St. Mark's podcast on the topic of fistula in ANO. Uh, my name's Peter McDonald, and I'm one of the surgeons at St. Mark's, and I'm interviewing Phil Tozer, who has uh, got, a, got a particular interest in anal fistulas. And we reached the point in the last podcast where we decided we could lay the fistula open. It was low, and the patient was uh, had the sort of bowels which... Uh, in other words, bowel function, which which wouldn't necessarily be a problem uh, if we did lose a little bit of sphincter. Uh, but now we're going to discuss how we might treat a patient who we feel that is either not ready or, uh, for a laying open uh, and um, or may benefit from one of the more modern procedures. I think we all accept that everything we do other than laying open fistulas is never quite as successful as as the former procedure but there are plenty of patients who are not ready yet to have that and they may actually have to do some time before they change into into someone who wants it laid open or they may get success by another method without losing any sphincter function uh, how are you going to approach this phil yeah i think you've raised some really important uh, points there in your introduction peter so we, we we finished off as you say at the end of the last podcast when and you asked me how i um, approach the management of these fistulae and and i start off by telling patients that there are three options and the first is fistulotomy and we went through that in detail in the last podcast and the other two are what is essentially symptomatic control with a palliative loose seat on or an attempt to heal the fistula without cutting the muscle and those are the sphincter preserving procedures which preserve the sphincter to greater or lesser extents, as I'm sure we'll talk about as time goes on. Right, let's talk about the setons first mm. of all. Um, you know, long history, probably 2,000 years or more, um, they've been used. Um, there's the loose and the tight seton, or the snug seton, as one of our predecessors used to call them. Um, where, where do they sit with you? Yeah, well, the, the key there is to think about treatment intent, and... The loose setons are the ones that we use here. We we don't really use anything other than loose setons. We use them for two reasons. Either to prepare a tract to reduce the inflammatory burden around it and settle it down as much as possible in preparation for a sphincter-preserving procedure, or as a long-term mechanism to reduce symptoms. And that's the palliative loose seton that I'm talking about. And I think that's a really useful phrase because it doesn't just describe how tight the seat on is but it describes the intent with which you're placing it and patients will sometimes be apprehensive about a seat on if they think it's going to last forever and so it's important to describe it as a, using it in terms of preparation for a sphincter preserving procedure in that situation but if we are genuinely using it in order to avoid the risks associated with um, fistulotomy and also to avoid sphincter-preserving procedure and simply to keep the patient comfortable, then I think it's useful that they're very clear about that. What word, What term do you use for that? A palliative loose seton. Right. And, uh, yeah, I think that's a very useful you've way dis- to think about you've it. You've dismissed the tight seton out mm. of hand here. Um, the French produced a lovely series about four years ago from Paris where they showed excellent results and no loss of control. Um, it's not really been our experience that they're very popular tight setons. What, what, what do you think? Yeah, so tight cutting and snug setons are probably all 
Well, tight and cutting cetons are essentially the same thing. Snug cetons are slightly different, and it's worth going back to read Peter Lunnis's initial treatise on that to think about the ways in which they are different. But tight and cutting cetons are based on the idea that you can cut through the sphincter muscle, um, curing the fistula like a fistulotomy does, but doing it in stages so that each time um, a few fibres of muscle are divided, the area behind is allowed to heal up and scar before the next bit is cut. So the muscle doesn't spring apart. That's one of the um, you know exactly right. behind this. So the muscle doesn't spring apart. Now the, there, are, there are three important questions then. The first is whether that leads to um, uh, avoidance of recurrence to healing of the fistula in the same way that fistulotomy does. And I think the evidence is that it probably doesn't, that, that recurrence is greater. The second question is whether that preserves continence. That's a more difficult question to answer. I think there is mixed evidence about that. Some people claim it does. Others claim that it doesn't. And I think it's relatively difficult to believe that it is completely um, protective of a patient's continence, particularly with regards to the internal sphincter. The other point about that is that it's a very difficult thing to trial. The only way really to do it would be to take fistulas that would would give a significant continence impairment and then randomise them to laying open or tight seat on. And of course, we can't ethically do that. If we're worried, if we're worried about laying open a, a fistula from the point of view of incontinence, we can't very well randomise patients to that in a trial. So it's very difficult to prove that it would be better in terms of continence. And the third point is about the other aspects, the softer aspects one might say, but probably not if you're a patient, about um, the cutting seat on. And those for my mind are two. And the first is pain, which can be very significant in tight and cutting seatons. It's almost seatons. unpredictable, isn't it? Because yeah. some, some, some of them, they're almost painless. And others are severely painful. Yeah, really. I've had patients telling me that they don't want any kind of seat on in the future, even a loose one, because the cutting seat on was the worst experience of their lives. Yeah. And the other question, aside from pain, is about the contour of the anus. And, and there are one or two techniques which I think may have some benefit in terms of the contour of the anus and the impact that has on continence in the future. The other one is fistulotomy or fistulectomy with immediate sphincter repair, which I again, which again I think carries significant risk in terms of continence impairment, despite what proponents argue, but probably is beneficial from the point of view of maintaining the contour of the anus and, and the impact that that has on continence. And that, again, as with the cutting on, has to be balanced against the uh, risk of recurrence and the disadvantage over fistulotomy from that point of view. And there have been view. very few studies in that, in that latter uh, procedure, you know. Yeah, there are a few out there. And um, we're putting together some of that data at the moment. And my view is that the very highest fistulae which are not normally disentangled from lower fistulae, which I might simply lay open, uh, probably do have quite a significant risk of dehiscence of the immediate sphincter repair and therefore a continence impairment. And that tends to be hidden amongst a bigger series, the bulk of which um, is characterised by patients with lower fistulae who will never get that kind of significant level of continence impairment so that the data we have falsely reassure surgeons that they can undertake fistulosum and immediate sphincter reconstitution 
in high fistulae when that probably isn't as safe as people think. It's a big step to take. You're making yeah. a big hole with a big risk of dehiscence, aren't you? We haven't got much more time on cetons, but just to say that we both got a lot of patients with loose cetons who are quite happy with them in their sometimes quite high and sometimes quite low uh, uh, fistulas who uh, we change them every two or three years and they never want anything else. Uh, would you agree we've got a few patients like that? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, um, those those are the kinds of patients who you you couldn't offer an advancement flap or a phylac to for, for £100,000. They are happy. They're settled. Everything's good. It's good in a way that it hasn't been since they had their first abscess. And they, equally, there are others who you do the same who are very uncomfortable straight away and you've got to go on to something else, haven't you? Absolutely, and it's really difficult to, to work that. out. Yeah, which so you've got ones. to try it. You've got to trial it sometimes, haven't you? Yeah, and I think you can trial different types of yeah. seton as well. Many people use the silastic setons, uh, the vessel loop setons. Um, we favour a one-ethibon seton, which we think is very comfortable, but um, there isn't good evidence about that either. Yeah. So let's move on now. Yeah. Um, I was going to think, I'm thinking of one of the... Po- topics which are popular now in one of the topics when the operation which has become popular which is the lift procedure the yeah. ligation of the intersphincteric fistula tract yeah um tell us about that yeah it's a technique first described in the early 90s by uh, robin phillips most people don't <laughs> recognize that but the paper's there but it was actually um popularized by professor rojan sarkal from thailand and and uh, i don't suspect for a moment that he didn't realize he wasn't coming up with something new i think he did and and essentially was it's a nice operation it's great fun to do but it's much more difficult than i think a lot of people give it credit for and i think patient selection as with many of these things is absolutely crucial so there are lots of videos around that people can watch regarding this but essentially a circumanal incision is placed either side of the fistula um, in the intersphincteric space and deepened um, developing that endosphincteric space with the fistula running across it and space is made all around in the endosphincteric space so that the fistula can then be isolated ligated or transfixed at either end and then divided and sometimes you might have enough space to excise a chunk of the fistula there are lots of variations on this technique including insertion of biomaterials into the space which is not something I think is a terrific idea and hasn't been shown to improve the outcome of the lift Um, and there are essentially as many variations as there are surgeons but broadly speaking that's the basis of it with closure of the yeah what do we do with the internal and the external so the internal opening has essentially been closed by the transfiction or ligation of the of the fistula tract on the side of the internal because there's not much separation between the two is there so so leave the the real internal opening alone just just divide the fistula in the intersphincteric space and then drain the outside the external opening so it drains nicely yeah i'll always curette it and widen the external opening and i'll sometimes undertake fistulectomy up to the um, external sphincter which might be beneficial again no one knows for sure close the wound um, and give antibiotics and that probably works it probably works about half the time in my view fiat suggested a little bit less than that but in a very small number of patients and high volume series are much better i think there probably is reasonable evidence that it's more effective in lower fistulas and less so in higher transphincteric tracts which are of course the ones that we're all looking for a good treatment for of course we are right well when i was your age phil the, the, the new kid on the block was the advancement flap, and we thought that was going to cure them all. 
we were sadly mistaken, I'm afraid. Uh, it was it was both more difficult than we thought, and two, uh, sometimes made things worse. Where 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 are we with the advancement yeah. flat, and where are we going to apply it today? Yeah, I think that's exactly right, your description of it. And there are some real experts around the world with really impressive series of advancement flaps, and they probably only get success in around 75 or 80 percent of patients after multiple operations and that really isn't that great although it's excellent in those hands and for the rest of us I think our our expectations about healing are probably much lower if you're going to do an advancement flap it's important to undertake it very well in terms of the technical approach and have a really good wide-based flap we're talking about full thickness so I think yeah, I think as there's... As well as mucosa, because it originally was described with just mucosa. Yeah. But that didn't seem to work at all. Yeah, so I think um, the thicker the flap, the uh, more likely it is to work and the lower the recurrence rate, but the greater the risk of continence impairment. And that's probably the same as you'd expect with any division of the internal sphincter um, with an insphincteric fistulotomy or um, treatment for... Um, uh, an anal fissure and that's going to be mostly um, wind and maybe a little bit of mucus leakage no more than that but that of course is an a risk that they, you, they the same patient might see in fistulotomy and you're offering them a sphincter preserving procedure and it's quite hard therefore to justify a sphincter preserving procedure which has a risk of damaging continence in my view also when it fails, it will quite often leave quite a generous hole because most people will undertake a fistulectomy, a core-out fistulectomy as part of the procedure. And so if the tract retreats, at least initially, the hole that's left behind means an increase in symptoms for a lot of patients. And, and often patients whose advancement flap procedures have failed will complain of things getting much worse in the immediate aftermath. Although it usually settles down. Yeah, I mean, you might turn a, a patient with a, an anterior you know, vaginal fistula from one who's just producing a bit of pus or occasional staining to one who's actually passing proper stool through through the vagina. Um, which is, could, which, that, is, which yeah, is a disaster. Completely disastrous. And, so and do you use it at all? And is it particularly in the anterior fistulas? The answer is I use it rarely. Um, I use it in fistulas which are high so that I'm not bringing rectal mucosa down onto the anal verge but not so high that I can't reach it and the rectum and the high anus has to be not scarred you know the whole area has to be pretty clean and pristine and I want there to be some internal interception or perineal descent evidence of laxity within the tissue so that I'm not going to be bringing it down under tension and when I do raise a flap I tend to inject dilute adrenaline in order to um, lift it up so that I can get underneath it. And I have to say that I tend to use um, a slightly different type of advancement flap than most people would use, which is the DeLorme-style advancement flap that Professor Phillips um, popularised and might have less of an impact on continents, but still gaining the benefit of using muscle. What do you mean DeLorme's um, advancement flap? So it's performed much like a DeLorme's procedure, raise the mucosa in the same way, as a Delorme's procedure, probably around half the circumference of the anus, and then placate the muscle wall down over the internal opening without dividing it, and then reattach the, the mucosa. Right. Now let's move on to some of the other things. We've got advancement flaps, we've got glues and plugs and uh, and, um, and vaft and phylac. Where, where are we going with all this? We can run through these quite quickly. Um, I think glue can be discarded both for cryptoglandular and um, Crohn's-related anal fistula. I think it doesn't really have any place now on its own and might have a future as a scaffold for delivering biological materials, but that's really pretty much it in my view, including the new permacol pastes. 
Plugs um, have a slightly better history, although um, it has to some extent followed the same route as glue, having very high success rates initially that have drifted away. The Fiat study has suggested a success rate of around about 50% clinically and of course when we look at the MRIs that can only go in one direction and there are some series which have found success rates much lower than that but like many of these techniques it is genuinely sphincter preserving and there really is no um, damage to the sphincter and no bridge burned and so many surgeons will use it once or even twice in straight transphincteric um, fistulas. Are you using plugs still? No, no, no we, we still don't use them here and uh, another of my concerns about them is that they can leave a big hole in the same way that the advancement flaps do. And I have, again, a number of patients in whom plugs have failed where that's been the case. Although, again, it tends to settle down and proponents argue that it acts a little bit like a super seat on and really helps to set you up for the next procedure. I think there's decent evidence that they are a very limited value in Crohn's disease and I certainly wouldn't use them there. OK, now what about VAFT and FILAC? So VAFT and FILAC are two of the newest techniques there, um, there are uh, a few case series for both of them, but there's no stronger evidence than that. They both work in broadly the same way, which is to ablate the fistula tract from inside, um, along with closure of the internal opening, disconnecting the gut from the fistula tract. And in that way, they hope to secure healing of the fistula because the internal opening and then the tract um, closest to the gut through the internal sphincter the sphincteric space and the external sphincter will stick and start to heal and the external component can then drain quite happily and phylac uses a laser for that and vaft uses cautery under direct vision through a small telescope and again we argue that they both probably produce a success rate of about around 50 percent and that's what ultimately is likely to be demonstrated the the best paper from arnie wilhelm for phylax suggests around a 65% success rate for anal fistulas and he thinks they that phylax works best in transphincteric tracts they have to be relatively narrow and it's best if they don't have wide areas or cavities which are much harder for the laser to act on effectively whereas vaf can be used i think in wider tracts and actually if a tract's too narrow you can't physically get the scope inside it because it's about three millimeters across and the best um, series there probably argue for a success rate of around 75% but I expect that to come down as time goes on. So you're generally using phylac for the, for the narrow tracks and vaft for the wider um, tracks is that right? That's exactly right and I, that's exactly right and I think vaft also has ex expanded utility which I won't go into today because I could talk about it for two hours but I think there's lots of benefits to VAFT in other ways other than trying to heal the fistula primarily. And how are you closing the internal um, Yeah that's the internal opening, opening that's a good yeah. question so initially it was being done with an advancement flap in both situations well certainly with Phylac with the with the um, VAFT in fact initially it was being done with a stapler. Yeah. Um, staples in the anus generally not a good idea in in my view a view I think shared by many and both have now given way to simple closure or, or advancement flap um, as the technique as the method of internal opening closure there's another um, method of internal opening closure the over the scope clip which has gained some popularity and comes from endoscopy again it's it's experimental at the moment it's in its very earliest stages it'll be interesting to see what happens to that but problems with pain and clip migration and the need for clip removal have put me off so far yeah so 
those are the modern techniques. Is there anything else on a horizon that, you know, that might be of interest in the years to come? Um, I think the next set of interesting ideas are going to be around augmentation, and that's using um, drugs or biological materials to try and encourage healing. Going back to the question about etiology that we discussed in the first podcast, it's my view shared by many that cryptoglandular hypothesis doesn't really answer it for us. There are some patients who are prone to a fistula persisting, whereas in others it simply heals and vanishes, and identifying the biological malfunction which leads to that and correcting it is probably the right way to go, and I think one can argue that that's the way that stem cells are thought to be acting in Crohn's disease, and I suspect in the future that we will be augmenting these surgical techniques with biologically active materials to try and encourage healing and prevent active ongoing inflammation the the, the asp- one of the ways we thought about fistula over the years has been infection in fact antibiotics are used a lot of the time aren't they even now by by all of us uh, to try and ameliorate some of the symptoms but when we try and culture these tracts we we often don't find any bacteria there at all how does that work yeah that's right and and uh a lot of the older microbiological studies um, found a paucity of bacteria and we try to repeat some of that work here using molecular techniques to identify live bacteria within the fistula tracts and we didn't find them. But what we did find was evidence of an effective host defence in the form of bacterial cell wall products which were, the ne- which were nevertheless picked up by macrophages and seemed to be driving part of the inflammatory response. So although the bugs are dead and therefore we can't find them in many of the traditional ways, they are nevertheless having an impact. So I think bacteria do still represent part of the pathological process, just not in the way we think. It's the endotoxin or the bacterial cell wall components like LPS, which are embedding within immunological cells and driving unbridled inflammation. And that's probably the case in Crohn's and non-Crohn's fistulas. So you think stem cells in the future might have a part to play not 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 new fandangled antibiotics they're not going to be enough it's going to be more complex than that yeah i think antibiotics alone probably aren't going to answer the question i think what we have to do is rebalance that abnormality where wound repair has given way to inflammation unregulated inflammation certainly in crohn's disease and i think ultimately we'll find that the same is true in what we currently consider to be non-crohn's related but refractory recalcitrant difficult anal fistula and if we can help our bodies or the patient's um, tissues surrounding the fistula to become less hostile to healing and more in favor of it then we might be able to get a higher success rate to augment it hence the phrase um from the surgical techniques like lift and others that we're using well thank you very much indeed phil for that um, snapshot of the surgical treatment and the management of fissure and ano um our third podcast when we do it will be on crohn's disease but i think we're going to take a, a much deeper view on the medical side of that as well perineal perianal crohn's disease will be a topic in itself but thank you very much indeed and uh, look forward to hearing you another time thanks peter